The book of Exodus, chapter 33. We've already read the text early in our service. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 23 on into chapter 34, verses 5 to 8. Last week we began this new series with an introduction and an invitation. We are drawing on the the plea of Moses to the Lord in chapter 33, 18 of Exodus, where Moses cried out to God, please show me your glory. We also drew from John 17. And Jesus' final request that he presented to the Father on our behalf before Jesus was arrested, when he said, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory. We know that's our destination. We are going to see the face of God. We are going to look into his fullness. But we, we noticed in 1 Corinthians, this good news of the glory of Christ, that already by the freedom that we have obtained through the Holy Spirit, we may behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ even now. Not that there is a physical eyesight, but there is that faith sight that the Holy Spirit grants to us. And so I urged you and I pleaded with you last week to make Moses' prayer your own. Have you been praying this past week? Please show me your glory. Show me more of who you are. Give me eyes to see you, that I may know you. Have you made that your prayer for yourself, for your children, for your grandchildren, if that's your life circumstance? Have you made that your prayer for yourself and for your family and for this church? Please, God, show to us your glory. What makes you pray hard? What really drives you to your knees? Problems? I'm sure. Sins? Probably so. Does the prospect of beholding the glory of God drive you to your knees? Does the the promise held out that you may see the glory of God make you pray hard like Moses prayed? David prayed something similar. He said in Psalm 27, you have said, speaking to God, he said, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. I think it's very clear in Scripture that these prayers are to be the model, the pattern that we ought to follow. Do you pray like this? I want you to examine your heart this morning. Do you hunger and thirst after God? Are you famished to be ravished with the beauty of the glory of Christ? Do you hunger and thirst for that? If you don't know this level of desire, why did you trust in God for salvation to begin with? If you have not known this in your life, if the glory of God in the face of Jesus is not on your radar, 
spiritually speaking. Why did you trust in Jesus for salvation to begin with? Because isn't this what He has saved us for? Isn't this the gain of our salvation? What He saves us to? That we may see Him, that we may behold His face, see His glory in the face of His Son? What else is salvation for? Jesus, the righteous, suffered once for all for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. This is the good news, right? What Paul said, the gospel of the glory of Christ. That is, the good news from God is the glory of Christ. This is what we have been saved to. It's what Jesus promised in John 14. It's what He prayed for in John 17. That's why He died. That's why He bore in His own body our sins upon the tree, that we might be reconciled to God, might know Him, might come to Him. And one day, as is promised in Revelation 22, may see His face. If that desire is not on your heart, do you truly belong to Him? Because again, that's what we've been saved for. Why would you be trusting in God if not for this? Moses cried out again, please show me your glory. And God's answer, the revelation of who he is, stands at the the headwaters of the revelation of redemption. And what I mean is that everybody who follows after this, who is redeemed, who sits downstream in history, can look back upstream to this revelation and have certain expectations of God. Based on this revelation, in answer to Moses' prayer, we may have certain expectations of God. Not conditions that we expect Him to create for us but the character that we can trust Him to prove over and over and over again. And like I said to you last week, the people of God took this revelation that God gave to Moses and they ran with it. All of, all of history, biblical history, is influenced by this word that God proclaims to Moses. And God is giving it to all of His people, not only to Moses, not only to 15th century B.C. Israel, he gives it to all of his people. That we may form certain expectations of God. Again, not the conditions that he will create for us in this life, but the character that he will prove to us over and over and over again faithfully. And so this is big. This is a very big word. And before we really get into this text... Let's go to God and pray that He would impress this word upon all of our hearts. Father, I want to come to You claiming Your promises, what You have said. You have said that You are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love 
and faithfulness. So, please, in the abundance of your steadfast love in Christ and according to the multitude of your tender mercies, hear our prayer now. And please, give to us your Holy Spirit that we may truly, with spiritual eyes, perceive your glory in the face of your Son, that transforming glory that will conform us to his image. You have said that if we who are sinners by nature are yet able to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so we come to you in Jesus and faith, claiming that promise. Please give to us your Spirit. And you have said, you have promised that if you have already given to us your Son, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things that we need? So please, give to us your Spirit and draw your people close to you. Give us a taste of your glory. Give us a vision of who you are so that our hearts would exalt in you and you alone. Have the glory from us that you are worthy of. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses says, please show me your glory. What is glory? Is it one of those abstract words? Can we really know what it means? Can we pin down a definition? Is it abstract or is it something that we can be exact about? I'm going to do this little uh, exercise here. I just want you to bear with me. Uh, I think this will help us to understand glory. If we look at how the Bible uses the word, and the Hebrew word is kabod, if we see how the Bible uses that in its literal sense, and then further how it uses it in a figurative sense, that will help us to apply it to the divine, to God, okay? So what is glory? Again, the word in Hebrew is kabod. The word literally means heavy. It means to have great weight. And so the word kabod is applied to Eli, the old high priest of Samuel's day, just before David. You remember him? The Bible says that he was very heavy. He was a very heavy, very old man. And it's the reason he fell over in his chair, one reason anyway, and he ended up breaking his neck and dying because he was very heavy. That's the word that's used. The Bible says that Absalom's hair was so long, it was very heavy. And again, the same word is used. And so that's just a sampling of the literal sense of this word. But figuratively, the word can be used for battles. Very intense, hard-fought, heavy battles where the, the fighting is heavy, this same word can be used. It's also used in, in the figurative sense to speak of a person's wealth or reputation. And we use the words heavy and weight like that. Uh, when we talk about a, uh, a person of wealth, we say that they're a person of substance. 
We speak of people that we know who have a lot of influence. We say that they carry a lot of weight. We may say that certain subject matters are heavy or that certain truths are very weighty truths. And so that's the, the literal sense of the word kabod, and that's the figurative sense. So what does it mean when it's applied to God? All the weight and all of the worth in the world cannot begin to compare to the weight and the worth of our God. He is the weightiest of beings, and we're not talking physical mass here. He is the weightiest of beings. But there's something more about glory that we have to put together, not just from the word itself, but from how it's used. Nobody talks about glory if there isn't something noticeable. Glory shows. And so when the Bible talks about the glory of God, that word kabod, glory, is often paired with the words beauty and splendor and majesty. Glory is something that radiates. Glory is something that shines. And so what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the worth of God shining forth. It is the beauty of God radiating. It is the splendor of God's perfections. But I think that the best way to answer the question, what is the glory of God, is to let God himself answer that question. And we look then at verse 19 of Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. I want to see the glory of God. And so God gave his answer. And and from this, we understand what the glory of God is. It is the goodness of God displayed, and it is the name of God proclaimed. That's going to be our working definition from Exodus 33. The glory of God is the goodness of God on display, and it's the name of God proclaimed. Look back at verse 18 or 19. This is God's answer to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The goodness of God seen, the name of God heard. Do you, do you have in your heart an, uh, an edge of your seatness to that? I mean, what more could we want? Do you, do you have an anticipation? to see, an anticipation to hear, to see His goodness displayed, to hear His name proclaimed. I mean, what, what else is there to want? What, what glory in this world, what, what things that are used as pleasures to seduce us, what compares with this? I know that my heart and my lips are inadequate. I, I feel very inadequate even to repeat what God Himself says to Moses ab- about who He is. I just feel like God God said this. And I, I think we can say He said this audibly. 
God, uh, Moses heard something. He, he saw something and he heard something. I just feel like, who am I to say the same thing? It's not my job. It's not my calling to portray the glory of God. I'm just going to speak what God has spoken. And God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. And he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And if you receive his grace and his mercy this morning, you will see. You will have true spiritual perception. And you will hear. And you will follow Moses' response. Beholding, you will bow down. That will be the effect of the grace and the mercy of God on you. I believe God wants you to see him. He wants you to know him. And he even wants you to know that he wants you to know him and to see him and to hear him. He wants that for you. And so the most high God is coming down to the mountain to Moses. But he says to Moses, but you're not going to see my face. He says, you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. I believe that when we speak of the face of God, when God himself speaks of it, Of course, he's not speaking in a literal, physical sense, but he's speaking about the fullness of his glory. Now, Moses was a great man. Among men, I think there would be very few to to compare to Moses. In fact, in, I, I think it's the book of Numbers, it says that there was no person on the face of the earth as meek as Moses was meek. And so he's the... He's among the greatest of men, but the the greatest of men is just a man. And so as a man, as a sinner, Moses is not allowed to see the face of God. He is not allowed to see the fullness of God's glory because it would destroy him. No sinner can see the fullness of the glory of God and live. But there's this promise from God. He's going to put Moses in this cleft of the rock. He's going to cover Moses with his hand. The goodness of God will will pass over and then God will withdraw his hand and Moses will be allowed to see the back of God. Not his face, but his back. If God doesn't actually have a back... Like, we have a back. What does he mean that Moses will be able to see his back? I think that we find a a stunning correlation to Moses' vision of God in Isaiah's vision of God about seven centuries later. Do you remember Isaiah 6, one of the most well-known passages from Isaiah? In Isaiah 6, 1, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He talks about two seraphim that fly around, who have six wings. With two wings they cover their eyes, with with two they fly, and with two they cover their feet, and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth, the whole planet is filled with the glory of God. But Isaiah says what he sees is that the train of his robe fills the temple. 
what is the train of a robe? We don't usually talk like that anymore. But what's the train of a robe? That's the trailing edges of the robe of a king that the, the servants will come behind and pick up, right? It's like it's the trailing edges of the glory of the king. Or it's the flowing trail of a wedding dress. It's the trailing edges of the glory, the beauty of the bride, right? Now, does God wear a robe? No. No more than he actually has a back. So what is Isaiah talking about? Think about this. He, he doesn't say that he sees God's face. He doesn't say that God fills the temple. He says the train of his robe, the edges, the, the hem of his garment fills the temple. The trailing edges of the glory of the God whom the heavens cannot contain fills the temple. And I think that's what God is promising Moses. You will see my back. You will not see the fullness of my glory. The heavens cannot contain my glory, but you will see the trailing edges. You will see the trailing edges of my glory. You will see my back. And so what does he see? The next morning after receiving this promise, these instructions, Moses ascends into the mountain of God and the Lord descends upon the mountain. And there he proclaims his name. His goodness passes by and he proclaims his name. So we're going to go back to reading verses 5 to 7 of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is the goodness of God? What does this name of God, the Lord, or Yahweh, mean? What is the goodness of God? What does this name signify? Look down at verse 6. Scan over it. The goodness of God is found in the glory of who He is. And the glory, verse 7, of what he does. It's in who he is. His goodness is in the glory of who he is and the glory of what he does. His name is bound to his perfections. That's verse 6. And to the performance of those perfections. That's verse 7. Do you see that? Who he is? Verse 6. What he does? Verse 7. His perfections? Verse 6 the performance of those perfections, verse 7. His character, described in verse 6, constrains what he does, as described in verse 7. And so, we read that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounds in steadfast love. That's who he is. What he does then, constrained by that character, is he keeps 
steadfast love for thousands of generations and forgives all manner of sin and does not clear the guilty but visits the judgment against the father down fathers down to the fourth generation. Now, let, let me say something real quick before we get into the character, into who God is. We are tempted to cut off what God does with that first half of verse 7. We want to forget the end, the end of verse 7, don't we? What if we do that? We end up with a God of our own making. I want to warn you. Do not settle on a God of cultural perception. Because right now, in our day, our culture, everybody wants to deny, stifle, suppress the justice and the wrath and the anger of God. If we settle on the God of moral imagination, even, we end up with a God who is not, not the God who is. We'll end up with a disfigured God. We'll end up with an idol, not the God who is. We, you are the people of God. Don't you want to see the God who is? Don't settle for anything less. Not what the culture insists on, not what we would like to be. Let's worship the God who is. Or we, we will end up with a God made in our image. A domesticated God. A God of our own making. So verse 6, what is the character of God? First, God is merciful. He is moved with pity toward the helpless. Why? Is it because our poor puppy eyes stir up that mercy, awaken that mercy? It's not that at all. It owes nothing to us. God is merciful because God is merciful. And his mercy isn't just for those who find themselves in predicaments that aren't their fault. His mercy, his compassion is to the miserable whose misery is their own making. He is merciful and he is gracious. What we have here really are three essentials. Three essential perfections. And some of them are in pairs. So the first is God is merciful and gracious. The second part of this this pair at the beginning is that he is a gracious God. He doesn't just save us from in mercy. He saves us to in grace. Let me explain. In the beginning, in, in a sense, God said, don't dig here. And what did human beings do? The very first chance we got, we started to claw at that very place to dig as deep and as furiously as we could until we got so far down that we could see no light and no God and we boasted of our freedom. But God, who is light, could see and he was merciful to sinners. And through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he lifted us out of the pit that we had dug for ourselves. But not only did he lift us out of the pit in his mercy, in his grace, he set us on the higher rock, the place higher than where we would even before we put shovel to dirt. Do you see that? He is merciful and gracious. He saves us from the pit 
And he saves us to the higher place, namely to himself. He saves us from what we deserve, what we do deserve. And he graces us with what we don't deserve. And he is not given to withholding. He is not the restraining kind of God when it comes to his grace. He lavishes you with his grace. So that in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, it says he will show to us the immeasurable riches of the kindness of his grace in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of his grace. He saves us from in mercy and he saves us too in grace. The other day, I was uh, out by the mailbox in the parking lot here and I saw this caterpillar crawling along the ground there and these fire ants, kind of like, it's just a few of them, but they were darting in and out, like picking on this caterpillar and it just made me mad. I hate fire ants. Everybody hates fire ants. And so I picked... I pick the caterpillar up. Mercy. Saving it from. And I put it on the trunk of the tree out there by the mailbox. Mercy was picking him up. Grace would have been setting him on his favorite leaf, which I didn't know what that was. But that's an analogy of God's grace. He saves us from. He saves us from our enemies. The enemies of sin, death, and hell. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And he saves us. He puts us in the highest place. He has seated us in the heavenly places with his son. He gives us mercy and he gives us grace. And it says, second essential perfection, verse 6, he is slow to anger. Everybody should be very happy about this. Don't we imagine that God is up in heaven with this massive two-by-four or with this whole storehouse of bolts of lightning just waiting for us to misstep. And and we, we really project ourselves onto God because, you know, we get, when people are constantly badgering us or hurting us or whatever, we, we get sick and tired. We get very frustrated. We get agitated. We get sick of them. And we, we think that way about God. But He is slow to anger. Like, like only God can be slow. And that's good. That's very good. An old acquaintance of mine uh, posted on Facebook the other day who um, used to profess Christ, but doesn't anymore. And so with all that's going on in Iraq and Syria, with the advance of ISIS and with the horrible atrocities that they're committing, he, he posted on Facebook and he said, how is the God of the Old Testament law any different than Isis. Because the God of the Old Testament pronounced judgment upon the nations of Canaan. Men, women, and children were to be destroyed. There's a lot of answers to that question about what is the difference. But I want to answer his question with a question. How long did God wait after the first announcement of that judgment on the nations of Canaan before the actual arrival of that judgment? Because here is ISIS marching into a city in Iraq, into a city that has been historically Christian, and saying 
to those who profess the name of Christ there, you either convert, pay a tax, or leave. How much time we got? Well, the clock is ticking, isn't it? And will they actually, if they start paying a tax, not force their evacuation? Will they not commit it? They're obviously not believable, right? But the clock is ticking on the judgment they announce. How long did God wait before he first, before the arrival of that judgment from the time he announced it? Try six centuries. God, our God, is slow to anger. He said to Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And that's not even to say how long before that announcement to Abraham that they had been provoking God to anger with their vile sins. That's one difference. One difference. Our God is slow to anger. God abounds. Third, essential perfection of verse 6. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. As we continue our way through this series, I'm going to show you why this is one of my favorite words, really in all of the Bible. This word, it's in the Hebrew, it's uh, it's hesed. Actually, has it begins with a this guttural sound from the throat, but you don't want to hear that, so we'll just say hesed. But it's such a rich, rich word. In a lot of translations, it's it's hard they see to to pin down something exact, and so they translate it in a variety of ways. Particularly, the old King James version took this word hesed and translated it in this passage as goodness. But in Psalm 23, they translated it as mercy. In other places, it's loving kindness. And showed us the richness of that word. I really appreciate the ESV translator's choice of steadfast love wherever this word is found. Because wherever you see steadfast love, then you know, even though you don't have any knowledge of Hebrew, that it's the same word. It's the word hesed. And they chose the word steadfast love because wherever you see this word, the constancy and the covenant nature of the love of God is very evident. So it's steadfast love. Even here you can see the constancy of it because it's paired with the word faithfulness. God will be faithful to who He is. God is going to be true to what He has said. God will be true to his people, steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the covenant God. And so the, the, the goodness of God that he shows to Moses, he swears to all of his people. It says he abounds in this steadfast love and faithfulness. What do you have an abundance of? Maybe some have an abundance of possessions. I know my kids have an abundance of toys. Maybe it's an abundance of troubles, sufferings, problems, sins. We would all say that. God has an abundance of steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. This is God's goodness. This is what his name, the Lord, signifies.
So here are three essentials. There's five things, but some of them are in pairs. First, He is merciful and gracious. He saves us from the worst miseries that we make to the highest place, namely Himself. He is slow to anger. He waits on sinners to repent. He is long-suffering. He is patient. And He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. So His goodness is covenant committed. It is sworn and it is sealed. So those are God's three essential perfections that He shows to Moses. Now to the performance of those in verse 7. What does the character of God constrain Him to do? Number one, at the beginning of verse 7, He keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations and forgives all manner of sin. Now it doesn't say in the English Standard Version to thousands of generations. But I think that is extremely clear from other passages that parallel this. Like in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7 verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So he keeps steadfast love and he forgives all manner of sin. We have three kinds of sin listed here in verse 7. Iniquity. Iniquity is the twisted perversion of our hearts that we are bent to our own way, naturally speaking. That we are crooked. Transgression is, to use the uh, earlier analogy, when God says, don't dig here. The first thing we do is we grab a shovel. We start clawing at the earth and digging as deeply and as furiously as we can. Transgression is the willful breaking of God's commandment. And then sin is our missing the mark, the standard that He has set. It's our falling short of His glory. But the the point of God is not to analyze these sins to death. The point is that We have sinned to death in all manner of ways. But God forgives. According to His mercy and His grace, according to the slowness of His anger, and according to the abundance of His steadfast love and faithfulness, God forgives. He makes a way that you and I can be forgiven. He forgives us. But also constrained by His character... It says he will by no means clear the guilty. Sin will be punished. Guilt will be born. Or God is not good. God is not God. If a, if a judge let a murderer go, what kind of judge would that be? If he just said, you're free to go? You don't have to pay for your crime. We would say that just that judge isn't just, he's corrupt. So God promises sin will be punished and guilt will be born. He says that the iniquity of the fathers will be visited upon the children and children's children to the, to the fourth generation. But in another place, God says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. That's Deuteronomy 24, 16. 
So do we have a contradiction between the two? I think that question is answered in another passage. Deuteronomy 5.9 says, You shall not bow down to the false gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I, I think it's very clear what the Lord means. Those who continue in the sins of their fathers will have the iniquities of the, the fathers put upon them. They will, they will be judged. Now, I want you to look. I wanted you to look at the contrast because there, there are two contrasts we have to note here that are very clear. First of all, in steadfast love, God abounds. And to anger, he is slow. To contrast, we have to take note of. That's for the encouragement of your heart. In steadfast love, he abounds. To anger, he is slow. That's good news. The second contrast is that God will keep steadfast love to a thousand generations. And justice will be meted out to the fourth generation. Again, there is a deliberate contrast here. Where our sin abounds, as Paul put it at the end of Romans 5, where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Sin will be punished, but sinners will be saved. There will be mercy and grace, and there will be wrath and anger. And somehow... We have to conclude because the revelation to Moses is just driving us to it. Sinners will be saved. Sin will be judged. Sinners will be saved. And so each of these perfections in verse 6 and the performance of them that's described in verse 7 are the revelation of God's goodness and the proclamation of His name. This is who our God is. This is how He defines Himself. This is who He is. This is the God that we are called to behold. This is who He is. And this is what He does, just as He is. As His perfections, so His performance. His character constrains Him. And it will all climax in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm... I'm just being able to hint at it today. Because I'm wrapping this thing up now. But this is really what we're going to be exploring. How this can be. And and where the fulfillment is. It's in Jesus. It climaxes in the person and work of Christ. So what do you do with this? You must behold your God. Moses cries out, please show me your glory. And you must make this your prayer as well. This is what Jesus prayed to the Father for. That we may be with Him where He is to see His glory. But the good news has entered into time and space now. The glory of God has manifested itself already in Jesus. We have already the good news of the glory of Christ. You may see it. Do you long to see it? Are you hungering and thirsting to see the glory of God in Jesus? So make it your prayer. Behold your God. And behold all He is. Don't settle for bits and pieces that you like. Don't settle for 
the, the traits that the culture wants to emphasize, or you end up with a domesticated, small g, God made in your own image. We are God's people. We don't want a God made in our image. We want the true God, the living God, the Most High. We want to see His glory. So behold your God. Pray that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And then, read the Gospels. That's what you do with this. You want to see the glory of God? Read the Gospels. Read the first-hand eyewitness accounts of those who were with Jesus for three years. The Apostle John was one. He said, we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Read the eyewitness accounts of Him. That's glory on the ground. Jesus. And read, especially, of that Thursday and that dark Friday. Because it's in the cross of Jesus Christ that all of these perfections that God claims for Himself meet mercy and grace and anger. Steadfast love and faithfulness and justice for sin. It all meets at the cross. And that's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament over and over again that it's at the cross of Jesus that we see the glory of God in the history of our redemption climactically displayed. So read the Gospels and focus especially on that dark Friday and turn to the glorious Sunday when God the Father raised His Son from the dead in triumph over sin and death and hell. So really, that's one point. What do you do with this? Behold your God. And second, bow down. Because that's what Moses' response was. In chapter 34, verse 8, it says that Moses hid his face and worshipped. He bowed. Everyone who truly sees and truly hears bows. Everyone who truly perceives, spiritually beholds their God bows. Is your heart bowed? Is your life bowed? If it's not, you're missing something. You're not seeing all that God would have you see. None of us will on our own. And so, again, pray that God would in His grace give you eyes to see His goodness and ears to hear His name displayed and proclaimed in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for Your revelation. Where would we be without it? We couldn't see. We couldn't hear. We'd be lost. We'd be We'd be stuck at the bottom of the pit that we have dug for ourselves to get away from you, boasting in freedom. But you have come to us in your mercy and you have made yourself known. You want us to know you. 
And so I pray, Father, that it would be the desire and the very passionate prayer of everyone who's gathered in this room to know you. I don't know, Father, what may be hindering some in this room. What distractions, what worldly pursuits and ambitions, what selfishness or just boredom. But God, I pray that you would burn away the stubbornness of our hearts and you would, by your Spirit, take off the scales from our eyes and make us to see. Make us to see your glory in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.